Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland, of course. And this is the last of our week of December 1941 uh, specials, uh, which have, uh, you know, opened minds, expanded horizons and also made me realise yet again how little I know about what went on in the Second World War. And, um, and let's face it, we've been we've been crossing oceans, we've been to deserts, we've been to minus 35 because obviously yeah. winters were brutal. Yeah, uh, and we've made some we've made some important claims about the Matilda too that, that <laughs> I think stand up. Anyway, um, but today um, we're talking to um, a long-term friend of the show and contributor, Warfest contributor, um, Waitman Bourne, um, about what's going on behind the lines in Operation Barbarossa because I think the problem uh, well, and and typhoon and the things that follow one of the one of the problems with uh, 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 looking at this period is it's the the giant armies clashing are very beguiling and exciting things with big arrows happen on maps at this period of the war but what's going on behind the lines in those army groups is also why Barbarossa is a typhoon and the invasion of Russia as the Soviet Union has happened in the first place. So, Waitman, how are you, mate? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Good. Excellent. So, um, uh, and you're, you, will you be going back to the US for Christmas? Is that the plan? That is the plan. Uh, first time in three plus years. Is, uh, oh, all things wow. going well, logistically speaking. Uh, oh, well. Oh, well. Let's, let's hope the, this government doesn't, um, oh, <laughs> tread on, oh, Fuck. Anyway, um. <laughs> yes, I'm, away. I'm. I'm supposed to be on Tuesday, so um, oh, counting God. it down. Still oh, don't have God. COVID. <laughs> anyway, um. So Waitman, what what is going on in December '41 uh, away from the battlefront? Because the because we've talked about the the Moscow counterattack and the stuff that's happening. You know, basically from the from the you know fifth of December is when Guderian stops, and then the and then the Soviet counterattacks start. And the uh, you know the the attempted sort of encirclement and cutting off of those salients and all that stuff. What's going on, you know, in 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 the conquered lands, as it were? Well, I think I think there's a lot of things. I mean, this is this is me again beating the drum of the fact that the Holocaust 
and the Nazi genocidal project, you know, is not to be separated from the war itself and the progress of the war. So there's, we really have sort of um, continuities and then some important decisions that are, are being made or, or arguably that we're seeing the, the results of those decisions that have been made earlier, depending on who you're, which historian you sort of go with in the sense of, of, of key moments in the Holocaust. So, you know, in terms of things that are continuing, um, you know, we have the, the Einsatzgruppen and the mass killings and the mass shootings that have been going on since June are still going on. I've, I've been looking at, you know, I have a, um, an Einsatzgruppen report here, uh, you know, from, this is from Smolensk on December 17th, and it's just a list of, of people being executed. Uh, eight, eight Jews and Jewesses who had been hiding in the, outside the ghetto in Mogilev, 62 Jews and Jewesses who had, been dis- who had disobeyed the order relating to wearing a Jewish badge, two Russians who had wandered about for weeks in the surroundings of Mogilev and spread rumors among the population that the Soviet troops were returning soon. These are all people that are executed. Right? So this is a, a thing that is continuing to go on. Um, you know, between November and December of 1941, over 250,000 Soviet prisoners of war have died. Um, in, in, 275,000? You know, 250,000, yeah. 250,000. Just, just in that in that month period. So we have, and they've just died through of, starvation, lack of care, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah, starvation, ex- starvation, exposure. Um, you know, all these things. Um, and so, there, in that sense, we sort of have uh, the same, the same old, same old, in a sense, going on. Um, you know, ghettoization is is in full swing, but the ghettos have not been uh liquidated obviously or no deportations have really started in those places um but you have all the suffering you can imagine uh for those populations in in poland and other places um things that are are, again continuing to go on some of the things that so i guess one of the things that and al mentioned this earlier maybe we, we should we can potentially start there is there was a really important meeting that was scheduled for the 9th of december and this is the meeting that would eventually go on to become known as the Wannsee Conference, which actually took place on January 20th of 1942. Um, but for obvious reasons, uh, with the start of the war and the failure potentially of Typhoon and everything else, um, the start of the war in the Pacific, the American entry, uh, this, this meeting gets, gets postponed. Um, and so I think there you have at least one very specific impact of the entry of the Americans into the war, as well as the sort of failures on the Eastern Front, which is that this meeting uh, is pushed back a month. Um, and you know, we can talk about the, the significance of it, uh, what it was meant to do, but here you have a very real impact on, on the planning, perhaps, of the policy. Um, and there's, there's at least one historian, a guy named Christian Gerlach, who argues that December 1941 is the time when the decision was made for the physical extermination of all the Jews in Europe. Um, and he has lots of things that he sort of uses to suggest this. Um, you know, one of them is, an, is a diary entry uh, by Rosenberg where he talks about a speech that, that he changed because it had to be changed now based on the decision. And it was a speech in which he had he was going to say something negative about the Jews of New York in an attempt to sort of, uh, I guess, threaten uh, the Americans about entering into the war. Um, and then, according to Rosenberg, uh, Hitler said that the, the text needed to be altered based on the decision that had been made. Um, so anyway, minute, I'll be, yeah. W- w- the origins of this go, go, go further back, though, don't they? Uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's Himmler's notorious visit to the, to the front and, and feeling upset at having to witness it. Um, it's, it's, it's Goering, isn't it? Um, and his, is it July forty-one? I think it is, uh, where he says, "Come on, we've got to, we've got to come up with a solution for this." Yeah. Um, and so, so let's just chart that because obviously, you know, Bob Rosser starts in June, and 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 the the if a decision has been reached effectively by December nineteen forty-one, how do they get to that decision between the launch of Barbarossa and six months on? Yeah, exactly. And so there, there's a there's a couple of things, you know. Uh, to highlight in terms of chronology, because I, when I was sort of uh, making some notes for this this podcast, I had to have December and then before December, um, you know. And of course, we have we have uh, Hitler's speech in 1939, where he says that if there's a world war, 
if the Jews drag us into world war, essentially they will be the ones that are exterminated and not the and not, or, or annihilated and not the not the yeah. Germans. Um, but we have as 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 James, as you mentioned, you know this Heydrich memo. Uh, it's technically from Goering, but Heydrich literally writes it um, and hands it to Goering to sign off on. And Goering knows that he has to sign off on this. And this is the memo in which uh, Goering says, I hereby charge you with all, making all necessary preparations uh, for a complete solution of the Jewish question in Europe, essentially. And that's in July, July 31st. And that is the, essentially the marching orders that gives the SS uh, sort of full control over the, quote, Jewish question. Yeah. It's called Blanche, sense. isn't it? It is, and it's and it's what and it's also what Heydrich. I mean, if you want to know, if you want proof positive that that's what this is doing, when the the invitations go out for the Vanse conference in November, November 29th, the invitations go out. Uh, Heydrich attaches this a copy of this memo to every invitation to let all the all the bureaucrats and all the officials know, hey, I'm in charge here, and I have the right to sort of to see this out. So but he's already element. before Vonzi. I mean, you know, I mean, we can say now, by by December the ninth, he's already worked out what that solution is, right? Well, I mean, th this is this is the part that's really interesting from an historian's point of view because what we don't have is a Hitler letter or memo or order where he says, "I hereby order that all Jews of Europe will be murdered in gas chambers, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. We it just doesn't exist, um, you know. But obviously, unlike David Irving, you know the. The, the conclusion to draw from that is not that Hitler didn't know, but that Hitler gave this gave his approval in, in a non-written non sense. Um, yeah. Because obviously, with every major issue in Jewish policy, Hitler is read in on this. So then we look at, okay, what are some of the, what are some of the behaviors that change on the ground after, the, after Barbarossa that begin to suggest a, a shift from what had previously been these territorial solutions, like we're going to ship the Jews to... Uh, the Lublin Reservation in Poland, well, that doesn't work. We're going to send them to Madagascar, well, that doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so then, how do we see this? And there are a couple of things. Uh, so first we have the the change in targeting in the Soviet Union. So um, in, in late July, beginning of August, we have the SS Cavalry Divisions now murdering men, women, and children, rather than sort of men of military age, which Jewish men of military age, which is a quasi- sort of threat category. Yes, that's a sort of part, but that's a kind of partisan style action, isn't it? Is that if they're military age men that you could you've got a fig leaf of justification of it. I mean, we're talking about this period of these these big sort of these big massacres, aren't you? By now, you know, they've been happening by December, like these large scale events with, you know, towns rounded up and everyone murdered and Jews, Jews called Jews called to 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 um uh, give themselves up for transportation and turning up in larger numbers and then being rounded up and murdered, basically. That's what's going on, isn't it? Well, I mean, these, so this is the time period of um, what we call the first wave yeah. uh, of killings in the East, where it's, where it's sort of, it's the first sweep through that, again, is intended to, uh, to murder theoretical enemies, right? The Jewish men and military age thing. But then, of course, this changes already um, by July, August. So we see that um, on September 6th, we have the first use of Zyklon B in Auschwitz, um, where, and again, who are the victims? Soviet prisoners of war. Um, they are the first people essentially to be gassed by Zyklon B in Auschwitz. And that's on September 6th. Um, so already we're, we're seeing experiments, and we're also seeing this across the Eastern Front yeah. with uh, different groups experimenting about what is actually a better way of killing, perhaps, than, than these mass shootings. Um, then Where's Babi Yar? That, that's like September. So Babi Yar is October 28th. Yeah. October um, and interesting, before that, we even have, I'll, I'll come to Babi Yar in a second. Um, before that, on October 18th, we have an interesting notation in one of Himmler's um, phone logs where he says, no immigration by Jews overseas. And so up until this point, believe it or not, it was legally and theoretically possible, um, for, particularly for German Jews, to actually emigrate from, from Germany. Which is why we get up the until the second half of nineteen forty-one. Yes, and so which is why we get you know um, of the five hundred thousand Jews that sort of live in Germany in nineteen thirty-three, half of them managed to escape Germany um, by you know this time period. Wow. Now again, the problem is of course based on American and, and Western anti-Semitic immigration policies. 
most of them don't get any farther than someplace in Europe, yeah. which doesn't, doesn't usually help them, but they do get out. Um, this, this notation in October 18th, I think, is really interesting because it shows that somebody has decided that it's not worth it to let them scatter to the four winds in Europe, which suggests that um, there's at very least an attempt to consolidate them. You know, and one of the things we have to make, we have to keep in mind, of course, is that at least initially, and this is one of the things that changes in December. Um, initially, there is a difference in policy towards German Jews uh, versus uh, Jews from Eastern Europe and Poland and elsewhere. Why uh, is the, why why do you think that is? Is is that a sort of um, a, a kind of nicety about citizenship and German? you know, g- internal German politics that you've got to, you know, because after all, there's the, the, the famous Goering quote of, you know, if, the, or I'm paraphrasing what he says, if 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 all the nice Jews at the end of the road, um, you know, that everyone knows, if I, we left them all out, there'd be no one, there'd be no one, we wouldn't be dealing with anybody. I can't remember what the exact quote is, but he says something like that, doesn't he? He says, my mailbox is full of the nice, the nice Jew at the end of the road or the doctor. And if we, if we exclude all of them, then we're not going to, deal with any Jews at all uh, is that what's going on is it is it is it is it or is it some sort of le- legalistic thing because after all that you know one of the things that happens in the east is that these sort of new states are formed where the where the where Germans have pure authority over the you know the, the people they regard as their racial inferiors so they can do what they want whereas in Germany there's at least a sort of semblance of law still going is that what, what, what's what's causing this well I think my, my my sense is that there's a couple of things going on you know, first you sort of have the artifact of, you know, I think the very real, the real phenomenon of the fact that Hitler and the Nazis are are sort of taking this step by step and seeing what what is acceptable yeah. um, in the population. And so, from a certain perspective, I think German Jews have been protected um, in the service of uh, sort of morale on the home front and the yeah. Nazis feeling out what's what's acceptable in the local population, which is why yeah. you see this sort of incremental, sort of the salami method of individual slices of discrimination, persecution over time. Yeah. Um, and you even get this when, when once, this deport, once these deportations start, which is in November, um, and, they get, and they get paused essentially in December as a result of some of the transportation issues on the Eastern Front, uh, as a result of, of Moscow. Um, but... You start to see, even when they arrive in Minsk, for example, the the SS guy in Minsk, guy named Kuba, even says, oh, you know, it is kind of, it is interesting seeing these different people, because German Jews really are different than, you know, the Eastern European Jews. And he, he, he sort of has these, these moments where he meets them on the street and, you know, they have the same sort of cultural history and understanding because they're, you know, they're German. Yeah. Um, so he doesn't see them as sort of Jewish Slavs. Well, I mean, this is this is the no. I mean, this is the problem, right? That that, that or, sort of is or the, even Bolshevik Jews. Yeah, they're not they're not Bolsheviks in that sense. Um, and and this gets to what Al was talking about with this idea of sort of the good Jew, right? The good the good one that is not like the propaganda says. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that you see, and I would also I would argue then, of course, that one of the one of the things is that the Nazis are interested in once they decide what to do with German Jews. They want it to be a very quick thing, which is why they don't they don't have they don't establish ghettos in Germany or Western Europe for that matter, you know. But they don't they don't want this hanging around. Once they decide to get rid of them, they sort of just want them to be gone. They don't want it on um, show either, because because you know a, a ghetto would would also it's less de- in a way it, it's less deniable, isn't it? If you've got a get if you had a ghetto in Berlin. You could easily you could easily curdle public opinion. Is actually thing. It's interesting, isn't it? That the, the Nazis who are characterised as totalitarian are actually they're very sensitive to how they how this can play politically at home, aren't they? They're they're really they've really got their eye on it. Yeah, I mean, and and it, they they definitely are in the sense that you know, they have these SD reports, these mood reports, these Stimmungsbrichter, yeah. which are basically just you know going around listening to bars, and and you know it's not necessarily that the Nazis are going to to change their overall policy based on this. No. Um, but Hitler himself is, is, you know, he's clearly one of the reasons that Germany doesn't go on the, onto sort of a war footing economically in, in terms of rations and stuff is that he is sensitive to public opinion. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean that he necessarily cares a whole lot about the people that are making the public opinion, but he is sensitive to what the, the impacts might be. Yeah. Um, 
Yes, because he wants so, room for manoeuvre politically. It's it, it's it's all to serve his en- ends, isn't it? Um, it yeah, absolutely. It, yeah, yeah. And so one of the things that Vonze is all about, you know, in both in in the initial incarnation and then in, in its actual execution in January, is what do we do with German Jews? Uh, because basically the fate of Eastern European Jews has already been decided. It only becomes a question of of execution and how does how does it take place. But you have some, you can, and you can look at the people that end up at Vanze. You know, you have legal experts, you know, who are there to yeah. determine who is who actually is Jewish, and you know what what does the law say about what we can theoretically do. Yeah. Um, and so, so that's something that another getting back to the you know how do we see these decisions having been already in a sense executed? Um, you know, those and and then I guess one of the biggest is. Um, and, and James mentioned Babi Yar, so we have 33,771 Jews murdered in the space of, you know, a few, several days in Kiev at the behest of the German military. Um, so these mass killings are still going on. So when you're talking um, about the German military, is that is that the Wehrmacht or is that the SS? Or, or, it's the Wehrmacht. Or we not, it's, the Wehrmacht. it's the Wehrmacht. So, you know, when the, when the Wehrmacht occupies Kiev, um, the NKVD has left a bunch of sort of what we would call today IEDs. Um, you know, delayed detonation yeah. bombs and things like this. One of them blows up and unfortunately, in the sense of <laughs> officers, you know, kills a German general, German artillery general and his staff, um, which irritates the German, the Wehrmacht. Um, and they are, they are quite instrumental in advocating for a reprisal action that leads to the murder of, of, the, of the largest, the largest open air shootings in history, basically, but in, but, in Bobby but, but they're going to do it anyway. I mean, this is the thing. This is the thing that's striking about that. When I when I'm reading about that, is that here's actually an action, a, a, an event that gives them an excuse. But they're going to do it anyway, aren't they? This is this this is the thing. It's it's completely the the, the entire project. It, it it it's it's running right through it in every aspect, isn't it? And and. What what they're offered here is an excuse, aren't they? Basically, yeah. I mean, they're offered an excuse, and you know, and there is, of course, the things we've talked about on, on prior episodes of the, you know, the Wehrmacht obviously being very anti-communist, anti-Bolshevik, and, and you know, and, and and so that's that's bleeding in there, right? Yeah. Um, but you have this mass shootings, and then you have the, the smaller shootings, you know, that are they're continuing to go on, you know, uh, shootings that in, in a place called Slonim, in a place called Novogrudok, um, you know, ten thousand in a day. 15,000, 5,000. This is continuing on. Um, one of the things I think is, is, and again, we're talking about sort of what's happening before the month of December. On November 1st, construction begins on the Belzich Extermination Center. Right. So already in November, at least one of the, the, the Reinhard camps, the dedicated killing centers, is under construction. Which again, you know, means that, means again, if we, if we backdate some of this, that somebody sent out those orders to create a gas chamber and a, a dedicated killing center before December. Yeah. Um, so your purchase, Decem- purchase orders and all that sort of bureaucratic stuff have gone out long before. Well, and also yeah. presumably the basic design of a gas chamber. I mean, someone's got to have thought that through and worked out how you do it, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know... In relation to crematoriums is, and whatever, I mean... It's, it's not, not It's not the Auschwitz one, right? With the, the Auschwitz crematoria, which which evolve over time, because the first gas chambers at Auschwitz are basically um, brick brick cottages that have been repurposed for that. We don't get the we don't get the sort of stereotypical ones that we, we all think about... The concrete walls. ...until 1942. Yeah. Uh, you know, and one of the things... And, of course, one of the things to think about as well, I always like to highlight that... Um, I always like to highlight that um, the there's, a, there's an interesting quote or interesting statistic, which is that in the spring of 1942, so just a few months after the time period that we're talking about, of all of the Jews who'll be murdered during the Holocaust, two-thirds are still alive. By that same time in 1943, that, that ratio is completely reversed, and two-thirds have already been murdered. So what you have is a massively quick... Um, acceleration in the killing process that takes place very shortly after the time period that we're talking about. And actually, it takes place during the time period we're talking about. Yeah. Because the, the Kelmno uh, Extermination Center becomes operational on December 8th and begins murdering Jews you know, in, the, in the sort of systematic, industrial kind of fashion that we're, we're used to thinking about already in December. 
Yeah. And so you already have one. We have one extermination center operating in December on December eighth. And this is in gas chambers. Well, it's it's gas vans, and so it's what gas happens vans, is, isn't it? Right. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. is this so is this is this is um, from the lorries. This is Walter but, Ralph. But it's stationary. Right. Uh, so meaning that it, it they they basically take a manor house uh, in in Kelmno, and the Jews come into the basement, and sort of the all the processing and, and disrobing and and looting and body, uh, looting of valuables takes place. Then they're led up a series of stairs into what they think is a room, but it's actually the gas van. And so they go into the gas van, the doors close, the, the van drives out to the burial site, and by that time, they're dead by the carbon monoxide. So it's not, it's not a mobile killing site in the sense of you know, a van traveling to, to the victims. Um, it's a stationary site that, that Jews are deported to, and eventually it becomes a, the major killing site for the Lublin ghetto. We need to take a quick break now. We'll be back in a second. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We are talking to Waitman Bourne about what's going on behind the lines in the Soviet Union. So, so, so this, this, this Waitman casts the Vanze Conference in a different light then, doesn't it? Because as you're saying that you've got the, the you know, legal experts there and they're, they're debating what to do about the, the, you know, Michelin and all that sort of stuff, aren't they? They're, they're arguing over who is a Jew, what, what, what qualifies as a Jew and ancestry and all that sort of thing. And, and very often Vanze is cast as the moment that sets, you know, the, the, the train tracks to Auschwitz, literally. And that's not, you're saying that's not really the case, that, 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 that it's a sort of, it's a, it's a bureaucratic tidy up moment that they're having, where they're trying to figure out what to do about the politically sensitive end of it, whereas actually the mechanics for the rest of it is already underway and, and obviously evolving. And like every other aspect of everything else we've talked about in the Second World War, everything evolves from, from September 39 once the sort of, you know, once the chocks are off and, and, and things start moving forward. And we've talked about, you know, how the, the British war plan evolves and changes quite dramatically but actually you've got some deep decisions laid down in sort of 41 that come to a fruition in 1944 it's 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 the same it's a similar it's a similar thing here so so vanze in the in the new year of 1942 isn't a turning point it's 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 a waypoint it's 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 it, it yeah it's a it's a sort of tidying up of loose ends of of the administrative organization of it isn't it I mean, it's it's more like a coordination meeting, really. Yeah. Um, and if you look at, with the exception of Heydrich, who is is a and, and and I suppose Eichmann to a certain extent, who are, you know, almost principal players. Everybody there is a is a deputy of some kind. Right. Uh, so, the, not, the, but, but the point is, the big decisions have already been made, haven't they? But yeah, I mean, the the big decision, I would argue, certainly the big decision about. Are we going to is is a physical solution the solution that we're going to are we going to physically exterminate people has been made and and the two major the two major issues that come about at Vanze are what do we do with as as Al points out the Michelin of the mixed so-called mixed race people that that have sort of you know more difficult legal situations and are now German citizens yeah so that's the first thing and then the second thing is simply okay let's get every every cabinet agency in the government on board with you know how with with doing their part if you will yeah in this process yeah um and so you know one of the one of the big um you know, sort of debates i suppose uh, between the about the decision point when when is the decision point is is it euphoria of victory i.e june july 1941 or is it sort of the despair of defeat um i.e december yeah and again it, at a certain level this may not be important, but I think it's interesting uh, because certainly there's, there are a lot of scholars that make the argument that, you know, in, in July, in June and July of 1941, Hitler and the Nazis are think, well, you know what? We're going to win this thing pretty quickly. Yep. And and our final solution of the Jewish question, which was initially something that was to be postponed until the end of the war. Well, we're going to win. Let's let's go ahead and, and do it now. Um, and I think you can see that with a lot of things that that we've already talked about in terms of the changes in in policy, um, and then sort of the the canary in the mine, I guess to the sort of the all in is German Jews. What's yeah. what's happening to German Jews? And eventually, you know, by November December, they're being deported to Eastern European ghettos 
as as again as a an intermediate stage, I would argue, uh, until the until the extermination centers are are prepared and are ready to sort of take these mass deportations. Gosh, I mean, it, it, it's it and it's not uh, things like Bobby R. It's not until sort of 1944, well, 1943, where they uh, where because they're beginning to lose, they think right, well, we better cover this up because it's all it's brazen, isn't it? The 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 the, the mass the mass executions. Are known about the people is people witness it escape survive, um and and word is word is completely out about this happening. It's not being done in in secret, is it? It's being done in plain sight. Yeah, I mean it, these are things that I mean it, it, they're they're being done in plain sight. In the in any in the sense that anything in Eastern Europe is considered plain sight, but yeah. no one's really looking, right? Like the yeah like, yeah exactly. Like, yeah. You know, it's yeah. like it's like. You know, but people the, are taking kind of cine film and sending it back to Berlin to be developed. Yes, and, I, I mean it's certainly know, for the German, for the average German soldier, this is plain sight. You know, they they're 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 coming you, you across. Can't, you this. can't be a German soldier in the Soviet Union and not not realize what's going on, can you? Yeah, I, exactly. I don't. I, I think it's just it's impossible to be um, to be immune from seeing this. I mean, there's a. There was an interesting article I read in The Guardian about um, Lenny Riefenstahl, who maintained to the end of her life that that she knew nothing about uh, about the Holocaust. And there's actually a photo of her uh, in Poland in 1939 witnessing a mass shooting of Jews. Yes, and the, um, the look of horror on her know. face, famously. Yeah, and she's she's absolutely. And then of course later on, she's actually pulling uh, Rom Romani people out of a concentration camp to use as extras in her film. So I mean, but it is very difficult. To, su to suggest that you could spend very much time and not be exposed at, at least some very minute level to the fact that these but, things but, are going on. But wait on. a minute, it's not just... I mean, the, the levels of violence that are going on is, is not just directed at, at, at Jews, is it? I mean, you know, it's of villages being torched in Ukraine and people just being shot willy-nilly and... You, you, you know, I mean, if, if you're a Wehrmacht soldier, you're what you're just witnessing is just extreme violence, isn't it? I mean, you are seeing people taken out and shot and hauled over into pits and things, but you're 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 seeing so much more than that. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's 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 just it's an absolute maelstrom of 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 grotesque violence, isn't it? And and I agree completely. I mean, and one of the things that. I mean, what what that are they doing? I mean, what, what, why on earth are the Nazis kind of torching Ukrainians and shooting Ukrainians when, you know, half the Ukrainians would go over to the German side and help them if they were given half the chance? I mean, it seems absolutely insane. And I know it's all well, part of the ideology and all the rest of it, but what is going on there? I mean, cer certainly, it, again, these things are different in different places as well. Um, you know, Belarus arguably comes in for some of the worst treatment, uh, because it it doesn't really have a a strong nationalist movement that the Nazis can sort of harness uh, or want to harness. Whereas yeah. I, I would argue that you you see you see a somewhat lighter touch to populations, and again it's all relative because the Nazis. But um, in the Baltic states and in Ukraine, then yeah. you do obviously in Poland and arguably in Belarus. Uh, well, you've had in, you've in, had German troops fighting alongside the Baltic states in the Russian Civil War in 19, 1920, haven't you? Yeah, and you have, and for, with the Ukrainians, you know, you have for a long time you had Ukrainian exiles in Germany, yeah, you know, sort of being groomed by the Nazis, and and also kind of led down the down the Primrose Lane with the idea that they're going to be some kind of of nationalist puppet state, um, which which is quickly disabused, um, but. I guess what I'm saying is that you, it, it depends on what populations. And then, of course, one of the things that we haven't talked about, and, and this is something that I think increases over time as the as the military situation gets more and more desperate, is the creation of, of what the Nazis call, uh, what the Wehrmacht calls, desert zones, the Wusterzonen, which is basically they, they, they take the front line and for five miles or so behind the front line, they remove the entire population, they burn everything, you know, as an attempt to sort of secure that that front line space. Um, so, the, so they're they're, used, they're they're saying this is a, this is for military reasons, security, this, security, military reasons. Yeah. Yes. But but, uh, you know, but it, obviously, what they are doing is shooting themselves in the foot, aren't they? I mean, yeah. The, the, you know, as I as I say, the, the you know the the greatest trick that the 
the Nazis ever pulled was convincing the world, convincing, you know, Ukrainians and, and Belarusians that, that Stalin's a better choice. You know, I mean, when they go in there, had they behaved differently, um, all the cards are in Hitler's favor in the sense of, right. you know, these, these people are not fans point. of that's, Stalin. Yeah, that's the point I'm trying to make, really. It's, it's, it just seems, you, you know, why, why do they go down this route? I, I think in a, one answer is that their their racial their racial worldview just just doesn't include any for any of I mean, these they, people at all. Yeah, they have their own dimension. Yeah, they're they're all inferior in a certain sense. Um, you know, and uh, there's an interesting comparison between sort of Oberost in the First World War um, and its behavior towards Eastern European populations, which is like it's super condescending, it's super paternalistic. But also, kind of in the sense of let's bring culture to this world. Let's try to let's try to bring you up to our our amazing German standards. And of course, you see none of that in in the Second World War. You know, because yeah. there's, there's this this the the difference in the racial ideology and this this sort of this war of annihilation, this zero sum game. That you know, this is a, a there can be no sort of negotiated settlement here. Yeah, um, these people are not are not envisioned. To be playing a role in a post-war Nazi but, but, empire, uh, uh, but 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 and yet, you know, German troops in or rather troops in German uniforms in Normandy are are infamous of being kind of Poles and even sort of uh, Mongols Cossack, and Cossacks, Cossacks and yeah. and yeah. you know Ukrainians and Czechs and all, and so on. I mean, so well, they kind yeah, of, this is they sort change of their tune, don't they? I mean, you know, I mean, why don't they just do that? You know, if they're going to do that in 1943, why don't they do it in 1941? Because they're going to win well, really I, quickly, presumably. I, I think because one of the reasons is, of course, that this is where pragmatism meets yeah. ideology, you know, and so right. you have like the, you know, the, the Galician, SS Galician division of Ukrainian volunteers, um, you know, that, that doesn't really fit nicely into the Nazi sort of racial hierarchy uh, but at a certain point they need manpower and and Himmler also is doing this partially for sort of internal bureaucratic reasons right that the more the more troops under his command the sort of the higher he rises in the yeah. the power structure yeah. uh, which is one of the reasons for the Waffen SS existence in general yeah. um, but you know you, you do have some some rather absurd from the Nazi racial worldview point of view you know units like you know predominantly Muslim units you know these kinds of things that are just would I think in a, in a in a racialist ideological sense would be considered anathema and something that you you couldn't really have. Um, but again, you know, this is again if we talk about sort of how the military situation influences uh, the Nazi genocidal project, this is this is an example of that. Um, and also, I, I would argue that thinking about December nineteen forty one, you know, there's some really interesting moments. You know, there's a, I just had this noted down. I wanted to highlight. Um, at a meeting at the Wolfschanze in de on December 18th um, with Himmler Himmler and Hitler have a meeting in which uh, Himmler notes down that the outcome of the meeting was Jewish, here's what he wrote uh, and I quote Jewish question colon slash line to be exterminated as partisans and so again you know you have this this linguistic mixture of Sort of conventional military behavior with, um, with with genocide, and, and I, I mean I, I love this particular comment because it's so telling. Just linguistically, it's, it's number one. It's a tell that what we've been doing already is exterminating people. Yeah, um, and also that that the level of of sort of finality and severity moving forward should be basically what we've been doing. But why are they bothering to say treat them? Why as are they partners? using the euphemisms? Yeah. Why are they using the euphemisms? Why don't they just say we're going to exterminate all Jews? Well, I mean, I think there's a question. Is just, that because they not... know, but because they, they they want to coerce the good folk of the Wehrmacht into doing their dirty work? I mean, is is it you know really? I mean, well, I think I think God, what's it's really, also what's really freaking mad, isn't it? It's just... I think what's really interesting at this point is, of course, this is December eighteenth, right? So the Wehrmacht has been has been murdering Jews and calling them partisans for almost three or four months at this point. Yeah. So linguistically, we have the question of: Is it saying when it says to be exterminated as partisans? You know, do we think he means 
we're going to disguise it as, as if they are, as if we're calling them partisans. Yeah. Or is he saying we're going to exterminate them in the same way to that the we extent, would partisans. to the extent that we have been exterminating quote partisans. Yeah. Um, and I think that you know by December, you know this is probably the more likely of the of the options because we've already seen a, a shift to doing that. Um, and again, it's 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 not just the you know the Wehrmacht sort of fig leaf piece because the SS has been doing this very consciously. Um, yeah. You know, and you have a series of really interesting meetings, hurried. You can almost imagine these sort of frantic meetings um, after the after Pearl Harbor. With with Hitler and Himmler and Bormann and Hans Frank, um, Goebbels, and have they have these meetings? And of course, they make you know the, this comes after the declaration of war on December 11th, when the the Nazis make the sort of ridiculous decision to declare war on the world. Um, the next day, there's a Reich Chancellor meeting, and as I mentioned, I, I think it's worth maybe quoting in detail. This is from Goebbels' diary, uh, and Goebbels was there along with at least we know that Hitler, Himmler. Hans Frank and Bormann, his, uh, Hitler's sort of personal assistant, is there. And this is what Hitler says, according to Goebbels. Goebbels says, quote, The Fuhrer is determined to clear the table. He warned the Jews that if they were to cause another world war, it would lead to their own destruction. That's the, the 1939 speech, the prophecy speech. Quote, Those were not empty words. Now the world war has come. The destruction of the Jews must be its necessary consequence. We cannot be sentimental about it. It is not for us to feel sympathy for the Jews, we should have sympathy rather with our own German people. If the German people have to sacrifice 160,000 victims in yet another campaign in the East, then those responsible for this bloody conflict will have to pay for it with their lives. End quote. And again, a lot of that is, is sort of rhetoric. And of course, it's Goebbels. And this is stuff that we've, we've heard before. But yeah. certainly it seems like they're having much more open conversations at the highest levels um, rather than this sort of, uh, let's sort of, investigate different different ways in sort of solving this problem that we see taking place up until this point. Um, but again, I think it's just really interesting, these things happening, you know, in, in mid-December, um, in the same context that Typhoon is, is you know, it's run out of is steam. failing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's it becomes very clear at this point that this is going to be an, actually a long war. Um, I mean, even the the final, quote, territorial plan has now is now clearly gone. Because it was the, what we call the Urals plan, and it's the least, it's the least fleshed out. But basically, the idea was, uh, we're going to dump all the Jews uh, east of the Ural mountain range, which will become our sort of Hadrian's Wall, and and it'll be this this frontier where we send German men to sort of serve for a while and get blooded, and then settle down in their cute little German farms. Um, and obviously, that becomes impossible because they don't even reach the Urals. So, all of their territorial solutions become impossible at this point um, yeah. though I would argue that this, again the decision has been made more or less beforehand um, but I think you can sort and, of and, see and Hitler sorry, sorry to interrupt but I mean you have this interesting moment where where you know doubts are seriously creeping in I mean you, you know you can read that in in the memoirs and diaries of people who were, were fighting on the eastern front at that point from a German point of view You've you've also got infamously you've got you know Fritz Todd turning up at the end of November doing a tour of the front and saying it going back to Hitler the Wolfschanz and going you can't win, um, and Hitler turning him to him saying, well, "What do you do? What what should I do about that?" And he says, "Sue for peace." Hmm. And obviously, Hitler's not going to do that. But but I suppose the point I'm making is already there is an element of doubt that Barbarossa, which was such a surefire bet in June, in the third week of June, 1941, to to those who were were um, you know commanding it and leading it, uh, and certainly in the minds of the leading Nazi elite. There are doubts creeping in, and yet at this very point is the moment they accelerate. And and just to fast forward a few years, you know, you've got the the the, the terrible tragedy of the Hungarian Jews. You know, we're losing the war, so we better hurry up and get it up, and and let's get that extra train track straight to the gas chambers at, at Birkenau because you know we need to hurry up this whole thing because we're losing. I mean, it's it's well, just again, astonishing, isn't it? Even that particular moment is is directly related to military outcomes on the Eastern Front because. Yeah. The reason that the Nazis are able to get a hold of the Hungarian Jews, which in the old country, in the old kingdom of Hungary, have been sort of held back by Horthy. You know, he's, he's, he hasn't, he's allowed the Nazis to take Jews in some of the newly acquired territories, but he's held back uh, the, the sort of 
traditional Hungarian Jews in, in the old in the old borders. The reason that the Nazis are able to get to them is Horthy is wavering yeah. um, about potentially trying to get a separate peace with the Soviets based on the way the war is going, and and this is what sparks uh, the Nazi and the Arrow Cross takeover in Hungary, which then makes all of that those four hundred plus thousand Jews. Um, available and, and in in the hands of the Nazis to to carry out that killing, you know. So you have these, you have this this. Again, as I always argue, the fortunes of war and, and the fortune of genocide are, are deeply intertwined. But I think one of the things you also see in this December time frame is is the distance that the decision makers in the Nazi state have traveled. You know, and just as giving an example, uh, in 1940, in the summer of 1940. So this is the summer of 1940. This is Reinhard Heydrich. He says, quote, biological extermination is undignified for the German people as a civilized nation. Which, you know, again, you can take that, you can take that with a, with, you know, a mound of salt, but yeah. it's certainly at that point, you know, there, there is some doubt about what... Extermination, what, mass extermination is not, is not seen as a solution. It's, it's not, it's In certainly not planned. Point. It's certainly not planned because, but, but, you know, but, again, but, we have but, Madagascar. But, but, yeah. but, but, you know, and I'm sorry, sorry to keep interrupting, but, but, you know, by December 1941, you know, things are not going particularly well. You know, they haven't, Barbarossa is not over in three months. You know, when they all go in, they all know that this is a war of annihilation. This, you know, nothing less than complete victory will do. And, and complete victory means decapitation of the Soviet um, leadership, political and military, and reaching the Urals. I mean, that, that is complete victory and, and that, and, and total destruction of the Red Army. That, that hasn't happened. So already they got trouble, you know. Th they've been counterattacked quite heavily, you know. Things are not going particularly well. They can't afford a long attritional war. They know that. Everyone knows that. They can't afford a war on two fronts. Everyone knows that as well. And yet, uh, this is the moment where they're getting cracky. You know, we we need well, to speed this whole process up and, and get on with it. And well, I, I suppose what I'm saying is is that is, do you think it's the case that that actually ridding the world of Jews is actually Trump's victory in the war. I mean, you know, that that is the most important thing for, for the Nazis is to get rid of Jews. Because 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 otherwise well, that, is, that is winning the war, Jim. If you're if you're if you've got their racial mind that, that racial mindset. Well I don't is, think it is though, is it? Because it's that doesn't include military conquest. That, that no, but, that's, but, that's winning but, the the, but the, if you're, the war of But if your racist mission is to rid rid the world of Jews, then that then ridding the world of Jews is a victory, isn't it? I guess so. I, mean, I think you. I think you can see it in, in two different ways, sort of simultaneously. Because the, again, as I argue, these things are not. They, these things are inextricably yeah. intertwined. Yeah. Um. You know that the, the the Nazi, the Nazi worldview and and foreign policy and all these things are in a a very real sense driven by an underlying racial perspective on the world, um, which doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean so. It doesn't mean necessarily that these things are, are, are counterposed. You know that that it's one or the other. Yeah. Um, you know you have he you have Eichmann after the war, and in, in, you know when he's 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 quoted as saying, "I'll gladly jump into my grave knowing that I you know, was participated in the in the murder of millions of I, I was responsible for the murder of millions of Jews." Right. So, in a certain sense, you're right, Al. That 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 is that is a win. On the other hand, you know these these things do. These things do interact with each other, and sometimes, and sometimes come to sort of opposing viewpoints. A great example is, you know, the deportation of German Jews. It was originally supposed to be twenty-five thousand German Jews sent to Minsk at the end of November, beginning of December, and Army Group Center actually says we need the trains for the for the battle for Moscow. Like things are not going well, we need the trains, and so that actually results in in fewer German Jews at that point yeah. being deported to Minsk because there is a prioritization. So it's not, it's not always a sort of blind uh, adherence to, to the racial war. But on the other hand, um, you know, I think it is something that certainly the SS, particularly the Algemein SS and the Camp SS, view as they're, they're just as much participating in the war as the Lanzer on the yeah. front. You know, it's yeah. just a different front, if you will. It's another front, yeah, yeah. But they're on it. You know, they're they are still they are still serving the Reich it, up to the extent that you know you have you have Himmler's bizarre 1943 Posen speech where he sort of talks about how how difficult it is 
for the SS to participate in murder and how it's basically it's, it's causing emotional damage and that you know this is the greatest chapter in our history that will never be written um you know and we need to take care of each other uh because you know what it's like to have stood in front of you know hundreds of thousands of bodies yeah uh, you know there's this sort of we're the victims here we're sacrificing in the same way that the people at the front are sacrificing yeah. um so these things are you know they're i think they're 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 symbiotic and they 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 play on each other um and and even even to the more basic level of you know and on uh, I'm trying to remember what yeah so on eight January so this is another another sort of tidbit or, or or sign of the way that the the front is interacting with the the rear on on January eighth Himmler basically gets the order that you will get no more prisoners of war uh, all prisoners of war are now being designated for labor in the rearmament or the armament industry and for military purposes so so your camps. Uh, particularly Auschwitz, which is building Birkenau at this point, will will no longer get any any free labor from from Soviet prisoners of war. Um, and so, one argument, you know, several scholars argue that this is when he turns to Jews as a as a potential form of slave labor because they haven't been used more or less industrially as slave labor up until this point. Um, and of course, the Soviet prisoners of war pool is is drying up for all kinds of reasons. Yeah. You know, one of one is of course that when they end up uh you know, of the 10,000 that that are first sent about to Auschwitz to help build Birkenau, I think something like 9 900 survived the war. Um so so the 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 Nazis are going through them at a high pace when they get them. And then of course they're killing them in mass numbers on these front themselves. And you even have later on in the war people sort of looking back like ruefully and saying, "Man, I sort of wish we hadn't murdered so many of them because we could have really used their labor at this point well because uh, this is the sort of typical of the tensions with hunger plans and stuff and all that sort of thing isn't there is that that that, that and, and you get this between people like frank and uh, uh, you know where it, they need the agricultural labor because germany can't feed itself but but they're also they also want to kill the agricultural labor because they want to you know th- th- these these immediate contradictions between the the world view and actually actually enacting it and the consequences of enacting it in in, in, in reality, they, they keep running into this, which which takes you back takes us back to the thing you were saying earlier on about you know the the pragmatism in 1944 that that things don't end up counterpoint to each other, they end up having to be actually dealt with in reality. I mean, it, in a way, it remind it, it reminds of the you know the Soviet Union in the, the any revolutionary project, they have to at some, you at some point have to accommodate reality, don't you? So the Soviet Union taking advantage of American capitalist, um, you know, uh, advice and all that sort of stuff in the 20s and 30s, that they're, that, that they're, they're prepared to turn a blind eye to the people there, the, the sort of compromises they're having to make to achieve their aim, aren't they? Their, their, their end aim. Because you know perfectly well that had the Germans won the war, all those, all those Cossack soldiers in Wehrmacht uniforms are going to end up uh, murdered, aren't they? I mean, the, thanks very much. Thank you for your service in a sort of horrendous, ironic way. Yeah, I mean, it, it's the, the the labor piece is really interesting because it it sort of highlights, and this is even, I mean, the, it's eventually with the assassination of Heydrich, uh, you know, and and moving into forty two forty three, it's eventually the the sort of annihilationist wing of the SS wins out on on the what do we do with the Jews yeah. question, but this is a very real debate. It's not a debate about should we or shouldn't we. It's a debate about time, you know, like w- well, we have all these all this free labor, why not take advantage of it, you know. In the meantime, and then eventually they can be they can be murdered later. Um, but it gets to this idea that that sort of all politics is local, you know. And at the end, you have sort of these conflicting motivations. So you have the guy that's in charge of the camp who wants to make himself look good yeah. uh, for his boss by accomplishing all of these missions or accomplishing all these building projects, and he needs the labor. So he's it's not in his interest at that time to to sort of. Uh, to murder them all in some kind of display of, of ideological purity. But then you have this really, uh, my, my favorite example of this, uh, you know, comes from the Yanovska camp in, in, in Lviv. The last, the last commandant was a guy named Vartsak. And, and, and Vartsak was not a good human being by any stretch. Um, but when the, camp is, when the camp is liquidated in July 44, so this is the, the Soviets are on the doorstep. They're, they're arriving the next day or so. Um, what he comes up with as his plan is he basically takes 30 or 40 of the last Jewish prisoners 
and creates this what he calls the Baustab Venus, the the construction construction group Venus, which just doesn't really exist in real life. He makes it up out of whole cloth, and he he spends he spends several months sort of tooling around, retreating into Poland, theoretically working on various building projects, essentially defenses, building trenches and stuff with these Jews. But quite often they're just they're just sitting around because he's using them and he's using their labor as a protection to prevent him and his fellow SS guys from being assigned to actually go to the front. You know, so again, you know, this is a guy who was totally happy with with totally happy murdering Jews. um, But in this instance, he literally has to keep them around because they're protecting him. The fact that he's in charge of this this really important uh, military building project that he literally made up, you know, is keeping him alive. So when it comes down to individuals, you know, he's not, he doesn't want to die himself. So he's, you know, he's willing to sort of massage his, his ideological ethics a little bit. My God. Every time we talk to you, Waitman, I am left completely, completely boggled. I mean, I had one, one, one question, which I, 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 uh, that, that sprung to mind is, is there any part of the Wehrmacht that wasn't touched by this? Is there any fragment of clean Wehrmacht at all? You know, to is there a is there a division that just never would have never run in? You know, I mean, maybe the people in North Africa. I mean, they're they're because because after all the well, the even in about, Tunisia, the SS come in and well, start. Well, well, the well exactly. There. Is there is there a single bit of it that you could you could say has nothing to do with this? Uh, I mean, I. I'm I'm wary of saying that. I mean, like, North North Africa. I suppose it's not you know, a trick the, question. I I mean, I'm, I'm, no, I'm not it's, trying to catch you it's, out because it's it's, no, it's, no, it's sort I, of it's, fundamental. It's an excellent sort of sort of thought thought experiment. Um, I mean, North Africa, sort of. But then again, you have the argument, which is not an argument, that the fact that there were Einsatzgruppen assigned to the Africa Corps, yeah. and that had they and had they made more progress and gotten access to Jewish communities in North Africa, they would have murdered them. Um, so there's, as I sort of argue, it's with the Wehrmacht and the clean Wehrmacht, it's, it's less about motive and more about opportunity. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, well, it's, in Tunisia, it's, they, they steal all the gold from Gerba, from the Jews in Gerba, the, uh, the island of southern, southern Tunisia. And they also round up all the, um, the Jews in um, Carthage and, and Tunis and elsewhere um, and make them do jobs you know, make them into forced labour and nickel their cash. So, you know, they, 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 they clean all the Jews absolutely bare in Tunisia. And again, it's, it's Walter Ralph, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the absolute shithead who, who uh, develops the, um, the mobile gas units, who's uh, one of the main guys involved in, in North Africa. I mean, so you're, you're absolutely right. There's the, I mean, whether the, whether your your guy in a kind of half track in the in the Deutsche Afrika Corps knows anything about it, I you know is is up for grabs, I guess. But but the, the tentacles are certainly spread far and wide. But I think one of the and you're right there. I mean, I, I'm not suggesting that the guy in the half track is you know a, a genocidal killer. You know, um, I, I'm merely suggesting that you know in certain circumstances, the evidence suggests that the Wehrmacht would be more likely than less likely to participate in those kind of things if that's something that they're being asked to do. I mean, and that, you know, the, the other thing that I think is, is interesting and often overlooked is the mobility within the Wehrmacht. You know, if, if you, if you serve in the Wehrmacht long enough, whether you start out in France in 1940 or you start out in, in the desert in 41, you're going to end up in Poland. You're going to end up on the Eastern front at some point, just statistically speaking. And so, you know, I think I think Al's question is really interesting because it, it works at two levels. One is sort of, you know, if you serve in the Wehrmacht as an individual guy, can you can you sort of serve through the war without being exposed to to the Nazi genocidal project is one question. And then there's a sort of the more structural question is, are there structures in the Wehrmacht that somehow managed to escape, uh, you know, escape dirting their hands in, in, in the Holocaust? And I think the answer to both is is probably no. And obviously... Obviously, it's 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 to different levels. You know, I'm not suggesting that every Wehrmacht soldier was was shooting Jews. Um, but if we if we look at things like knowledge, or the the time that you watched a shooting, or you drove by a place where shooting had taken place, or or you're using Jews as the people that are shining your boots, you know, it, which happened all the time. I mean, the, these kinds of things you you just can't help but notice. I think. Um, I mean, even the extent of like the 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 medical corps 
you know, in, in Lviv, uh, the German army and the Luftwaffe clear out several hospitals of patients and murder them to, to clear up space for, um, for war casualties. You know, and, and they're not all Jews, uh, obviously, but you know, they're they're it's another arm of the of the euthanasia program and and killing out, uh, killing disabled people and handicapped people, you know, because it, it it's a and this happens too with with Jewish properties, you know, in in Slonim, the synagogue is used as a as a warehouse by the very. I mean, I just I feel like it it is very difficult to be in that organization for any length of time, and not a not know what what you're sort of fighting for at some level and B, not be exposed to. Well, and C, not having participated one way or another, being adjacent to to it. I mean, gosh, it's so, it, it's so, my, the whole thing is, is completely mind-boggling. And, and also, you know, this week we've talked about uh, Pearl Harbor, Crusader, the Japanese imperial ambitions. This always just feels, you know, so removed from the tank from the tank battles that are going on in the in the North African desert, where, you know, where where you can do it with, you know, you can you can boil it down to chaps and maps and hellfire pass and and, and war and, without hate. Well, supposedly this war without hate and this idea of, you know, that 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 there are simple tactical and lessons to be learned and things to be demonstrated, kind of on a like on a risk board. And this is just of such a completely different order. And and yet isn't necessarily the thing that people come at first when they're talking about as you because as you write at the start of this wait when you said you can't disentangle the this from the war. They're the same thing. They're the they 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 erupt from the same boil that the, the, these 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 things. They're not they're not teasable apart. And yet they are treated as separate, aren't they? And I think that's you know, we've done that this week. We've, 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 you know, we've had our big desert battles, which sort of have kind of feel so removed from this, and yet obviously are entangled with it. Well, I mean, it, I, I think at a certain level, I mean, we could even we could even talk about you know December seventh and the sort of uneasy alliance between Hitler and the honorary the honorary Aryans yeah. of the Japanese, who who racially speaking, the Germans would want to have nothing to do with. Right. But yeah. he's he's and I'm not I'm not this is not my area of expertise, but it's always been my sense that that Hitler and the Japanese have this very uneasy kind of relationship. And yeah. I, I have to think that part of that has to do with the fact that Hitler is being forced to recognize that his only real allies are the Italians, which aren't really of much use. And the Japanese, which are racially inferior in yeah. their in, in everything that he's been saying, yeah. uh, you know, and. and and that must have, you know, one one wonders perhaps, and again, I don't want to get into counterfactuals too much, but, you know, if they had not had that racial sort of, and of course the Japanese, by the way, are racist in their own way well, as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, if if they if they hadn't had that barrier between them, could they have could they have coordinated better? I mean, you know, like if if they weren't being sort of, because one of the arguments, and this is something that Rob Satino, I always quote Rob Satino on this. You know, I was at a a lecture that he gave in in at the World War II Museum, I think, in uh, in New Orleans, and somebody in the audience asked Rob. They said, "You know, um, well, what would have happened if Hitler hadn't invaded the Soviet Union?" And and Rob just said, "Well, he wouldn't have been Hitler yeah. because it's it's just so fundamental to like what what he did." And so I I always wonder. And again, this is absolutely not me saying how could the Nazis have won the war, um, because I, that's a that's a that's a race to the bottom, but. There are, I think there are lots of ways in which a racial mind, a racist mindset has very real impacts on the lenses with which the Nazis viewed everything in the war and, and that, 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 that were not helpful to them, if you will. Yeah, 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 no, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, but but that's also one of the reasons why, of course, because when Fritz Todd says we're not going to win and you need super peace, Hitler just shrugs and turns away because... The, you know he's Hitler, and because they're already down that course, it's it's it, you know it's inconceivable. Well, and they are going to win because they've superior willpower because they're the master race too. You know that. Yeah, but they might not. But that. But, I know, but, but I know, that, but... that's fine because because it's a it's either the thousand year Reich, in in, in which case the, the Aryans are supreme, or they're not up for it, in which yeah. case they'll lose, and it'll yeah. be Armageddon. And this is the point we've talked about over and over and over again. It's a black and white world in Hitler's world. It's there's no grey area whatsoever. 
um, it, it's it's one or it's the other. So you just keep on going until you've got to Armageddon or you've got to victory. And you know if and you're right. And 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 if the Nazis don't win, if the Germans don't win in Hitler's world, it's their own damn fault. Yeah. Because because they, you know they weren't mad enough. It, they were They didn't have the everything will. that happens to them. They deserve it if they if they're not winning. And this goes all the way back to a guy named Wilhelm Marr was the guy who coined the term anti-Semitism, and he wrote this book in which he basically envisioned this war between Germans and Jews, in which only one and one group can come out ahead of things. And and so you get that. You know, by the end, right? Hitler's in the bunker saying, "Well, you guys, sure, sure, Berlin is being reduced to a smoking wreck, but that's what you get." Because yeah, you I, didn't have the yeah. I put you to, to you exactly. know, win the war. I put you to the test and you failed it. I mean, it's... Uh, it, uh, what do you expect? Yeah, like it's not my seen. fault. It's not yeah. my fault as Hitler. Yeah. You know, I, I had the vision. I had the genius. And one of the things we, we should also... I'd be curious what you guys think about this and how this might, might relate. Because isn't it, isn't it in December that Hitler finally basically takes complete control yeah. Yeah, over of, command? Six, yep, yeah, 16th of December. He takes yeah. command of the of the Wehrmacht, and uh, you know he's he's not the Wehrmacht. I mean, he's already commander in chief of the Wehrmacht. He's he is commander in chief of the army. He sacks von Brauchitsch and um, and says, "Right, I'm now going to take personal command of the army." It's insane. I mean, yeah. Anyway, and wow, what, note, a, what a what an hour that's thank been. You, thank you so much, Reitman. Honestly, yeah. As oh, no, always, with, yeah, Merry with, Christmas, as always everyone. With you, <laughs> I know, well, but, I mean, but, you know, but as always, Wayman, when we have these conversations, you, you know, you, you're always left just kind of scratching your head and, and yeah. thinking about it and just just how unbelievable it was. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's hard to get your head around it, isn't it? It just still is. Yeah. I mean, it absolutely, I mean, it, it's just, it's, um, I think, again, it's it's wonderful that, that we're willing to include this portion of the history in the history of the Second World War, because these things for so long have been kind of siloed in, yeah. you know, if you work on the Holocaust, you work on the Nazis, or you work on the war, history of the war. But I think one of the things that's been really great coming out of, of this podcast and, and on scholarship, you know, in the last 20 years is these things, these things are not, are, are inextricable. They, they are, they inform each other, you know, they, they have repercussions on each other. Um, you know, that they do not take place in a vacuum. Um, you know, and so, you know, those those German Jews who are not deported to Minsk, you know, their lives are are affected by the war by typhoon, um, you know, and eventually. And so so their path is different now because of what happened with the tanks and everything else. Yeah. Um, maybe not different, better, but is different. Um, yeah. You know, and, and potentially, you know. Other people's lives are affected, you know, as a result of the outcomes on the on the, on the battlefield. So, yeah. Well, thanks, Waitman. Um, yeah. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, I mean, thanks for so, having me. As, as so always, it's great food. to chat about the Holocaust on a Friday afternoon, Friday morning. <laughs> Friday morning. Yeah. Plenty to chew on there um, for everyone. Um, well, thanks everyone for listening. Um, uh, this concludes our um, December week, doesn't it, Jim? We haven't got any it more. Sure to do. Yep. It sure does. Yeah. Sure does. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, it's been uh, fascinating, though, hasn't it? It's been, it has, it's been yeah. good, to, good to do one of these little um, splurges. But also, you know, the sheer plates spinning at this point in the war. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. incredible. Like, think about it globally. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. We will be um, uh, we'll be back soon. Um, a huge thank you to Waitman. Uh, Family Stories continues on the Sundays, of course. Um, we will see you soon. Cheerio. Cheerio.